61, everybody. 61. Woo. We're in the slot. Back to rock you. Right on. Um, we're gonna let's let's do a toast, buddy. Okay. Um, to your health, 61. It's been 61 shows. 61 and lift, separate, sip. Ah, uh, we're back to the bottle. Ah, sounds nectar. great. Sweet, sweet nectar. All right. Well, we got a got a good show for you today. We're gonna we're gonna launch the new vector uh, video. Long awaited. We've, Long, we've told yeah. you it was coming, and here it comes. Um, and we got the the Aaron Smith video, Aaron Smith uh, interview. Hey, well, you know, enough of this. Let's go to the Miles So, yeah, the Aaron video um, and the Vector. Are you going to gonna Damascus and do that? No, I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool. Are you sure? I mean, we normally, you know, that's kind of what the thing is. We normally, we, we, we don't, you don't, you're not going to do the whole show with that mask on, right? I'm cool. <laughs> hey, man. You can't do that, man. Come on. We got to do this, man. Um, you know, the fans, they're waiting. They're waiting, bro. Come on, Doc. So anyway, um, like I said, we're going to start with the... Hey, man, are you going to take that mask off or what, bro? Come on, man! You can't, you can't keep doing this. There's something not right here, okay? I, I oh, <laughs> it's, it's Chris Harrelson! Oh my gosh! Man, well, we got a great show for you guys. So <laughs> settle in. Disclaimer, we got some field recording, so please do not use earbuds because you will don't, regret it. Don't use the earbuds. Um, yeah. All right. Well, it's a it's a it's a salute to Doc Love who's uh, out of town and uh we got old Chris Harrelson playing the part right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Smile, Aaron. <laughs> All right. Also, you're, we're recording now. Hi, everybody. This is Doc Love, Mike Rowe here, speaking with the illustrious A-Train himself, Aaron Smith. Thank you. Thank you. How you guys doing out there? This is a really great thing to be able to do. Michael illustrious, Rowe. yes. The illustrious. Thank you for signing that, that nine album contract with <laughs> Fools of the World Records. Handshake and a kiss, but we won't do the kiss today. Right. Anyway, uh, Aaron has uh, graciously consented to uh, talk with us. Mm -hmm. We're here in Nashville, Tennessee. East Nashville? East Nashville. East. East Nashville. Now, east of what? <laughs> I mean, east. the airport, yeah. the river. It's like, I never really know when people talk about East, east Nashville. Nashville. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know what it's east of. I, I would imagine <clears throat> because from where we are, that's east. That's due east, mm -hmm. west. Well, is it east so, of downtown? Like where? It could be east of the river. Okay, that's what I figured. What yeah. river? Uh, Columbia. Columbia River. And how long have you lived here now? Um, moved here in 1996. Wow. So we're yeah. talking almost 25 years. Yeah, I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of I lived I... in Sacramento for 15 years. 15 years. Yeah. And before that, you were mm. in... San Before Francisco? that, I was in San Francisco, L.A. Yeah. So, when did you get out to California? Well, first, where were you born? Because a lot of our fans don't really know your hmm. history and story. I was born in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. 1950. And grew up there and... Uh, grew up there and left in 1968. Well, certainly one of my favorite stories that you've told me all the years is about how you were going to go into the army, mm -hmm. right? Did you, and you didn't get drafted, or did you enlist? I did. You you got drafted. I got drafted. Was this nineteen seventy one? Seventy one. I went in January seventy one, and I got out March seventy one on a medical discharge. Mm -hmm. Now, you told me it was something to do with the soap that they used in the laundry? Yeah, the detergents they use in, to wash the uniforms. And yeah. uh, the doctor, uh, the company area physician said, we can't wash your clothes separate from everybody else's. <laughs> That's really amazing. But, but, but you had gone through basic training and you, you were gung-ho, right? Yeah, like you I was, gotten, in, I was you into it, man. I was, I was planning a life in the military. By that point, even and, though you'd been drafted, yeah, the uh, experience That's, of boot camp just like just it was it. easy. All you had to do was do what you were told. Yeah, you know, I mean, there was there was working out, you know, running and all that. Sort yeah, of the stuff. physical stuff, had but to that was right. all right. You know, I I didn't mind that. And you were strong. Yeah, at the time, so mm -hmm. you physically didn't have. You weren't like me, where I would have probably been in a fetal position. You know. <laughs> Crying, you know. I saw it. I saw. Yeah. I saw people crying in a fetal position. Um, the napalm, probably. It was. It yeah. was the gas day. 
coming, right. out, coming out of the gas chamber. Yeah, I've heard that's a rough one. That, that is a rough one. And I didn't have a mask. They ran out of masks by the time they got to the S's. Wow. So, so you just had to take it or hold your breath. Yeah, you know, there's no holding your breath because you're running around. They make you run in circles. Wow. <clears throat> well, that had to suck. And, and you know, your eyes are burning, your chest is burning, and you don't know where the door is because it's dark. And, oh. it's, and you know, you're just running and trying not to stumble on people because mm -hmm. you're running in a line in a circle and the drill sergeants are yelling at you and all of a sudden light comes in. He opens the door and goes, ow, ow, ow. Mm -hmm. And you get outside, man, the guys are weeping. Yeah, I'll I mean, bet. Everybody's on the ground. Yeah, I'll bet. Coughing, crying. Man, it's it a rough intense. one. Yeah. So they tell you this, and I remember you saying that your officer gave you two choices to stay in or, or get out. And they would have given you what, a desk job or something where the laundry didn't matter? Probably. I probably would not have gone to Vietnam. Yeah. You know. But that was happening at the time. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I tried to be polite about it. And, and the, uh, the physician actually got a little arrogant and said, listen, soldier, make up your mind. You want to get in? You want to stay in and you want to get out? Mm -hmm. So I just said, okay, let me out. He said, have a seat. I sat down, and he was gone for about five minutes. He came back, slapped papers in my chest, and said, you're out. Wow. Well, that had to be a really strange feeling. And so you end up on your mom's <coughs> doorstep. Yeah, I end up on my mom because I got home before she got off work. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, it was me. I was in, in my uniform, and I had my duffel bag. So I went over to a friend's house. Stayed over there until around 6 o'clock, came mm -hmm. home, and knocked on the door. And my mom came to the door and she said, Boy, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I told her the story. You know, I, I think in some ways she was glad to see me. Uh, I think. Yeah, but it probably was a weird thing where you gear up for something. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was really into it, you know. But this led to you getting into the temptations? Well, you know, before I went in the Army, I was in Chuck Jackson's band, touring with Chuck Jackson. Mm -hmm. He's a Motown artist. Okay. And Chuck had kept me out of the Army for a while. Mm -hmm. You know, he sent me to this doctor in Detroit and came out with a report that I had bad knees, mm -hmm. which I, I, my left knee was bad, but mm -hmm. I don't know. If it obviously, it wasn't bad enough to keep me out. And uh, it didn't work. Um, <clears throat> so when I got out of the Army, I got back into Chuck's band. Mm. And we went back. We had played um, in Detroit at the 20 Grand before I was drafted. And that's the first time I met Norman Whitfield. And he, he uh, made, made me a proposition to come back to Detroit and live because he was putting together the undisputed truth. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, sure. 
But you know, yet there were no cell phones or anything like that, and, and the only phone I had was at my mom's house. Mm -hmm. And my mom was at work. So when I got drafted, he was calling my mom's house, mm. not getting an answer. Oh wow! You know, no answering machine, anything right? Like that, you know. So uh, after I got out and went, got back into Chuck's band, and we eventually went back to Detroit and played the twenty grand again. And Norman came to the show again, and he's like, "Where you been?" So <laughs> I gave him the story. Right. <laughs> and um, he made arrangements for me to come back in October. I think this was around August. And um, I went back in October. You know, he sent me a ticket, flew to Detroit. Mm -hmm. And so how did the Temps thing happen? Well, um, the Temps were looking for a drummer. And Cornelius Grant was responsible for finding a drummer. Mm -hmm. So he went down to Hitsville, and Hitsville had a, um, a directory of all the musicians that had played sessions there. Mm -hmm. And um, under drums, he said, he said that he had played with every drummer in the directory except me. Mm. So wow. he called me. And luckily for me, I wasn't home when he called, but my, my roommate was home because he was sick. Mm -hmm. And uh, he answered the phone and left this huge note on the kitchen table to call Cornelius Grant. Mm. You know? And I called him, and he told me <clears throat> we were looking for a drummer and would I be willing to come over and audition? I said, sure, but threw my drums in the car drove over to his house, set up in his basement, and he brought out a reel-to-reel -reel recorder. He had to show on the reel-to-reel mm -hmm. music stand, charts, and off we went. Wow. So, uh, so did you get on the road right away with them? Yeah. I think it was like two weeks later. The first, uh, first gig was in Toronto at this outdoor stadium. It was the Temptations, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and the OJs. Wow. And um, <clears throat> we got there. It was a very windy day. And we were out, in, out on the stadium, out on the field. Uh, I have a rehearsal with the horn section. Mm -hmm. And the music wouldn't stay on the chart, on the <laughs> stands. You know? And you didn't have any, like, clothes pins no, or anything? No, no, no. And... Uh, so I haven't met the guys yet, you know. I just met. I just met the rest of the rhythm section, and so it was kind of going. It wasn't going good, mm -hmm. you know. And um, went back to the hotel, and I was really nervous, really scared, and um, so I went. I I figured I'd take a nap and just try to settle down, and then mm -hmm. close my curtains. Made it pitch black in the room. Mm -hmm. Got in bed. You know, I slept maybe a couple of hours, and the phone rang, and I thought it was my wake-up call. Mm -hmm. But it was the road manager saying that the gig was canceled. Oh! It was a massive thunderstorm. Going oh wow! Up. And I and I ran to the window and I opened the curtain, and it was like 
nothing but rain and lightning. And I said, thank you, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, we went to New York mm -hmm. and played the Apollo for two weeks. Oh, man. And so by the time we came out of the Apollo, I could play the show. Yeah, so you had it down. Any order you wanted to play. Right, that's so good. We were doing like three shows a day, four, <laughs> four and a matinee on weekends. Well, that's like a Duke Ellington schedule. Yeah. That's the way they used to do it back Yeah. Then. Well, you know, I had to think about why Duke Ellington did that. And I realized that you've got, what, how many men on a bus, right? Mm -hmm. And you got to keep them from wandering off and getting into all kinds of trouble. So if, if they have to make a, a school assembly in the morning and then a radio thing in the afternoon mm -hmm. and then a show at night and then another after hours jam, they're not going to have a chance to go off and right. get in trouble. <laughs> So, but you know, but that the Apollo, that's the Apollo and all the theaters, all the black theaters like uh, in Chicago, Washington, D.C., um, uh, Kansas City, maybe Kansas City, maybe. But all those theaters operated yeah. like that. You know? Yeah. You come in and there was a movie. You right. Know, people saw a movie, then a show, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the show is three acts, you know. Wow. It used to be an opening act, uh, The Spinners and The Temptations, mm -hmm. or an opening act, The Four Tops and The Temptations. That, that's the way it rolled there at the Apollo. Wow. And had you, prior to this, seen any of these acts that you were now, these legendary acts that we think of mm -hmm. them today, but they were having hits... Had you seen any of these groups, or was this your first time actually being in the... Now you're being a performer in the middle of a scene that you yeah. were listening to on the radio. Right. I, I, didn't, I didn't meet them until until mm -hmm. then, you know. So what is that? And them. you were, what, 18? I was, uh, at that time, I was like 20. 20. Yeah. But still, that's pretty young Yeah. in life. 20, 21. Yeah. I just turned 21. So, did you feel like a big shot, or were you, like, intimidated, or, or what? I mean, it must have been overwhelming, mind-blowing, to be surrounded by that much talent. Yeah. I wasn't that intimidated, because I had the, the approval of the band director and the Temptations and, and right. the rhythm section, you know? So, we were we were tight, you know? Yeah. That, was, that was the thing, so... Um, no, I wasn't intimidated. It was great meeting all these people mm -hmm. and meeting their band, right? And you know, all the other drummers and stuff like that. And, and then we would hook up sometimes, be in the same place, like in Vegas, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. we'd hang out, right? You know? So you made a lot of friends real fast. Yeah, yeah. And um, I had two friends in Durham who, that I grew up with, and we played in bands together. They were. When I was working with the Temps, they were working with staple singers. Mm. So we used to do shows together at Circle Star. Oh yeah, in Santa Clara That's and um, other theaters like that. You know, it would be the staple singers, Temptations. And so we had we had a ball. Yeah, it had to be great. We're, we're homeboys, you know. Right. We're hanging out. It was good. Well, plus it was a time when. Man, that was such a rich time for R and B and R and B actually being pop music, being a huge part of what was on the charts. You know, right. it wasn't like siphoned off or or 
you know, at that point in time, I mean, I, I think of that as the golden period yeah, in the was. 70s. Because all these groups had hits. Right. You know. Shy Lights. And, yeah. They're classics now. You know? Right. I mean, nobody knew they were going to be classics or anything like no. that. But they were hits at the time. Um, so it was, um, it was pretty exciting. You know, and you know, you see somebody show, and it would kind of inspire you. You know, I remember seeing um, Sam and Dave, no Eddie Floyd, mm -hmm. Eddie Floyd did yeah. Knock on Wood. I remember this is when I was still in Durham. I played in a, a band called the uh, Jam and Jammers, and we opened for Eddie Floyd at the Durham Civic Center, and Eddie Floyd had just come out with Knock on Wood. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know, it's got that. And this drummer had this thing. He was a skinny, tall guy, and he had his <clears throat> he had his bass drum roped to his throne. <laughs> yeah, so it wouldn't go anywhere. And when he got to that part, he I think I wanna not and I went <laughs> That's ridiculous. And from, from then on, every time I played Knock on Wood, I, that's the way I played that break. Man. And you could see his, he would kick that bass drum so hard, you could see it want to move forward. Right, know, but it's the rope, <laughs> the rope was pulling it back, you know. It was great. Well, a thing that we didn't talk about is how you learned drums and who were your influences while you were coming up to get to a point where you could actually get in a pro band like that at such a young age? Mm. Well, um, I played drums in junior high school, and uh, my band director, <clears throat> the choir director at our church, was the high school band director, and we had a, another guy, Mr. Edgerton, who was the junior high uh, band director, but they both played saxophone, and they played in the, in the jamming jammers together, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so when um, sixth grade, you can get in the band, hmm. you know, and, and so we go in the cafeteria for band every Friday. No, every day, actually. Friday was drummer's day. Hmm. That's when drummers played. Um, the rest of the week, you just had to stand there with sticks, you know. Right. Like this, and li listening to everybody else squawk and. Because everybody's learning their instruments, right. clarinets and trumpets. And yeah, <clears throat> and we were in the cafeteria, so we played on on wooden top tables. You mm -hmm. know? Didn't have drums. Uh, and then seventh grade, junior high, is when uh, you join the band, marching band. Mm -hmm. But the thing about sixth grade was, you know. I, I, I went in there, and there was a lot of drummers at first. But by the time the school year ended, mm -hmm. only about four or five. Right. You know? And I was still one of them, you know. And um, it was just something I was do I didn't know I could quit or anything like that. I just, you know, I just went along with the program, you know. And I uh, got in junior high school. I was, I was really um, kind of... Um, introverted, quiet, you know. I, I didn't have too many friends mm. in sixth grade, you know. Um, I had one cousin that was in the same grade as me, and 
we would hang out at lunch and stuff like that. But other than that, I didn't, I didn't have that many friends. And I got in seventh grade. And um, seventh grade, I got in the marching band. Mm -hmm. And one day, we were marching. We were marching around a baseball field and playing the cadence. Mm -hmm. Single formation around the field. And the drummers, the other drummers were slowing down. Mm the cadence. And Mr. Edgerton noticed that I wasn't slowing mm -hmm. the cadence down. So he put me in the front of the line, told the other guys not to play, and told the rest of the band to follow me around the field. Wow. After that day, I had a lot of friends. Wow. It kind of opened <laughs> up a social wow. thing for me. You know? That's um, good. Yeah, and, and really, people that are friends to this day. You know? Wow. Um, upper middle class blacks, you know, that I didn't know existed at the time, you know, prior to that, you know. Um, so that was that. Was that and it just kept going, and my mom, being in the choir, would ask Mr. Mitchell how I was doing, you know, mm -hmm. in band. And uh, he said, oh, Clark says he's doing really good. You should give him a better drum, because I had mm -hmm. this little wooden drum from the pawn shop that my dad got me. Yeah, and um, so uh, my dad went to this music store, and the University of North Carolina had just traded in their entire drum line for a new, and it was like white pearl, mm -hmm. and it was all it turned yellow over time. Right, know? and so I got that drum, and um, just start, just kept playing, just kept playing in band, and then I, uh, Mr. Edgerton put me on timpani, and mm. started playing timpani. Um, and then I went to high school and um, got in the marching band and the concert band playing timpani. Hmm. Um, now, what was this mid-60s? 19, I was in, I got in high school in 1965. Hmm. Yeah. I graduated in 68. It's just a touch of irony that I was playing timpani at the same time. Really? For my church. Because <laughs> I started on drums in fourth grade uh -huh. in 64 and stayed with it for two years through, you know, primary school, uh -huh. even in junior high. Wow. But I, and I had an old beat up kit, but I, <clears throat> you know, I was playing guitar at the same time, so it didn't really, you know, I didn't really get very far with it, but mm -hmm. it was fun to play timpani at church because we would do these cantatas and long things for Christmas and Easter. Mm -hmm. So we're both playing timpani at the same time. That's ridiculous. That's so if this were the <laughs> mid-60s kind of thing, so what kind of music did you like and were listening to? Like, did Or were you just listening to music in general, or did you have did you start to listen to drummers and pick out drummers so, you were digging? We were listening. I was listening to Stax. Yeah. And all the stuff that... We had two radio stations. We had a black radio station and a white radio station mm -hmm. in Durham. Uh, the black radio station came on at 5 in the morning and went off at 5 in the afternoon. Wow. The white station stayed on 24 hours a day. So the stations were segregated or they were just two kinds of stations? They were two, they were two kinds of stations because, <clears throat> you know, um, until the, like, Supremes and Temptations and people like that started breaking. Mm -hmm. you know? 
um, you only heard like Pat Boone. Really? Um, stuff like that, you know. It's weird because on the West Coast, I mean, I heard James Brown in 1962. I remember when Night Train was a hit. Oh, yeah. So all of, in fact, and he wasn't the only one. <clears throat> this thing. I mean, I, we heard a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I have to wonder if maybe it was that area because West Coast didn't. Yeah, we had KDIA, remember that, and mm -hmm. KSOL and all those kind of on the in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But most of the, most everyone was listening to all of the top 40 stations, which did not segregate at all. Mm. I mean, it wasn't like that. So yeah. that, I find that really interesting from a cultural yeah, point of view. Yeah, like race music, you know. Um, that almost sounds like real old timey, like the way I heard it was in the 40s, 30s, mm -hmm. even 50s. And it's the South. Yeah, you know? right. You know, it's segregated south. Um, so, um, yeah. So we'd listen, we'd listen to like Stax, Rufus Thomas, Barquets, mm -hmm. um, even James Brown. Um, 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 uh, what's his name? Um, Al Green. Mm -hmm. Aretha Franklin, right. all that sort of stuff during the day on, mm -hmm. on WSSB, WSRC, right. and turn in, tune in to WSSB after 5 o'clock. Right. And, and, but it was so cool because we got to hear everything like this. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't all mixed up. You got to hear the dichotomy of everything, yeah. the difference in everything. You know, we'd be listening to like all these black Southern acts on the radio, and then at night we'd be listening to Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and mm -hmm. Tears, right, and all that sort of stuff. You know, and it was great. It was really, it was. Yeah, really that's good. good. <laughs> Man, I'll never forget the day I heard Fingertips Part Two by Stevie Little Stevie. Wonder, yeah. I'd never heard anything that intense. I remember calling my best friend, Jim. I said, Jim, I heard the most intense record I've ever heard. We have to get down and get this thing. Right? Mm -hmm. and we went down to the drugstore, wherever we bought it. And we just couldn't believe the energy, you know, because that was, I think that was at the Apollo. It was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're hearing this audience, you know, it was almost like church. Mm -hmm. and, and that band is just pumping and he's doing this stuff and it was just wild, yeah. you know. You know, that was Stevie's doing, you know. Stevie was on, on the tour with um, the Motown Review. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very, it's said that he was a very mis mischievous little guy, mm -hmm. you know. And he had done, he did fingertips, closed it, you know. And he, he only had so much time. Right. Everybody had a set slot. And... Uh, you know, his time was up. They were, t uh, mm -hmm. come on, your time is up. And so he left the stage. And just before he got behind the curtains, he ran back out on the stage. And the musicians are standing up, you know, right. in a musical way, you know, and, and getting ready for the next act. And Stevie starts singing again. And uh, everybody looks at each other and, and starts sitting back down. And, you know, they're wondering, what are we doing? You know. Well, I heard the band leader going, "What key? What key?" Yeah, yeah. I remember hear that. hearing yeah. that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, because he left and, and he's go, "Let's hear it." You know, take a bow, and, and they're all running yeah. off, and and 
all of a sudden you hear this harp coming on. And that crowd is going absolutely bonkers. Yeah, yeah. And this thing ended up being, I, I, did it go to number one? I, yeah, it was big. Yeah, it's probably one of his biggest hits. Yeah. You know, something that w was never planned, you know, it just became this thing. Well, that one was a life changer for me. I, of course, I had no idea at the time that that was, he was going to become this legacy, legendary artist of with so much output for decades. But yeah. <laughs> As yeah. a kid, man. <coughs> they, used to, they, used to, they had this, they had this candy machine in Hitsville, mm -hmm. in, in the lobby there. And Stevie, I think his favorite candy bar was Payday. Mm -hmm. And they would keep it in the same slot. Mm -hmm. So he would know where it was. You know? But sometimes they'd play a prank on him mm -hmm. and move the Paydays to a different slot. <laughs> That's great. Well, before we go too much further, uh, we should play a song together because, you know, it's right. a music show. Yeah. And uh, we have not rehearsed this, but uh, what did you think you might play on? I think you got oh, my, uh, Let me get that. Oh, my gosh. My trusty. Look at that. It's, it's a pearl. It's a pearl. Yeah, you should pull that up and show them that it's a pearl. Look at that. Man. <laughs> I didn't know Pearl made those. Oh, yeah. Everybody got in the business. <laughs> They're all getting in it. Well, let me see.
shape me. You won't change me, that I know. personal favorites for a lot of reasons one is because i wrote it in five minutes on the way to you know to the circle k oh, really? well i remember i used to always go get donuts and i went over to get my afternoon donuts you know and uh i don't know what where that came from but it was like i between the donut run and the parking lot it was you done were. but then we went in and I don't even know, I don't even know what I t told you to, you know, I mean, it's like it was just such a basic idea. Yeah. But it was more the fact that uh, the drum sound we were getting, because that tiny little room, it was a lot like the Motown situation mm -hmm. where you hear this big sound, but you see this, where they actually cut it, 
and you realize that some, you know, those engineers were doing something magical with the reverb and with the mics and yeah. how it was a combination of the <clears throat> performance, the space, and just how they had to work around. Plus they had pretty tall ceilings in there. Yeah, that probably helped. Because you went down into the studio. Well, we didn't have that. No, we I didn't mean, have that. We had a, you know, what I considered a closet that was over-trapped and not really designed as good as it could have been. Mm -hmm. But we may do it. But yeah. on that particular track, you were getting this crack, ring and crack out of that snare. Yeah. And it just had this energy that was just, just undeniable. I mean... So it's. I wish we would have gotten more moments like that. We've got a qu quite a few, but you know how it is yeah, in the did. studio. It's tough to get something that feels spontaneous, which yeah. that was. Yeah, yeah. That was that that uh, uh, chrome brass scratch. Yeah, I think I still have it. And uh, there it is. Oh, look at that. We're gonna have to. Uh, yeah, hold it up for the the viewers because we don't want to lose. Uh, Great, great sound. There you go. There's the snare. Nice. Yep. Still hanging in there. Awesome, man. Yeah, that was just one of those great moments. Uh, my favorite moment in it, too, is right after the uh, guitar solo. Mm -hmm. You hit the cymbal, and it's, it goes... And it's just this... I don't know what cymbal it was. I don't remember you ever hitting it again during the track. I don't know how familiar you are. Have, how much have you listened to that track recently, if at all? I haven't. Not recently. There, go back and check it out because <clears throat> there's that thing where I did this. I was stepping on a pedal to do the lead, and I missed once, and it fed back. And everyone's going, what is that? You know. But when that solo's done, you do this kind of roll into the next verse, and you hit, hit the cymbal that goes kind of like, you know. And it didn't decay very long, but it, it's... It's a sound that is so distinct, huh. you know. Could have been a little splash or something. I don't know. Yeah, don't you know. I have to check it out. I think musicians often will key in on certain things like that that are sort of not featured, mm -hmm. but they're just there. Yeah. I know I have a lot of those with Bruce on some of the tracks he's cut with us, too, where I'm just going, what was it, you know? Yeah. And that comes with listening to it over mm -hmm. and over yeah, you a bet. lot of times you miss that stuff, you know, the little quirks. But, uh, well, anyway, I mean, you got into the Temptations, and that was a two-year thing. <clears throat> yeah, I got, I got into, uh, well, first of all, I got into the Jammers in high school with my two band directors. Right. And um, that's when I learned all the tunes. Right. And uh, So that helped prep you for the whole Motown scene. Yeah. And I was in a group in high school called the Imitating Temptations. Oh, really? Yes. Well, so I knew go. the show. So when I went to the audition, I you really were already wasn't, ready to go. Wasn't, I wasn't reading the charts. Right, you were just yeah, I was doing just it. playing because we, you know, temps very rarely changed their show, mm -hmm. and so we we kind of knew it. So I saw on your resume that you did, played with the Undisputed Truth for a time. Mm -hmm. I was his band leader. Actually. Really? Mm -hmm. Now was that around the time I? <clears throat> this old age, I cannot remember the name of their hit. Smiling Faces. Right. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. was it around that time, after that time, before? No, it was that time. It was that time. Yeah, we were on tour. We toured with the Jackson 5 that summer, uh, 1971, 72, 72. 
so summer you, of 72. So you had the privilege of touring with two top bands uh, on their on the heels of you know really massive singles like you know Pop Was a Rolling Stone that you played mm -hmm. on and uh, and then that other one by Undisputed Truth Smiling mm -hmm. Faces. So you were probably getting very big crowds around the time you were playing with them. Oh, we played none in the stadiums. We were opening for the Jackson Five, right? And that's when we were we had been out on the road with the Jackson Five like maybe a week, and then Ben came out. Mm -hmm. And so that was big. Yeah, that's huge. That took yeah. us through, and they immediately added it to their show. Mm. And um, but it was hard to them, man. It was rugged. Why? Because we were in a station wagon. Station wagon, no yes. bus, no, no buses, man. Not even like vans or nothing. So you guys were in cars trailing around with. Now, we're, how were the Jacksons traveling? Were they flying? flying. Oh, they were flying all the time. So, so was the undisputed truth. But the band was in the room, and I was responsible for getting the band to the next city. So were you kind of like a road manager then? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we had our little atlases. Yeah. The, yeah, sometimes, sometimes we had to make a we had to make a, a deal with the Jackson Five's crew mm -hmm. to put our stuff on the truck with with the Jackson yeah. Five stuff. Right. Uh, until we made that deal, we were towing a U-Haul. Oh a U no! And, no. Uh, <laughs> yes. And some and we pull up to these big stadiums, you know, and be on the inside and trying to navigate a U-Haul in there and coming out with the equipment, throwing it on stage, and people are coming in the arena, you know, and we haven't had a sound check or anything, and, you know, we set up real fast, and we play, like, a couple of bars or something, you know, make, maybe a verse, that's it. Yeah. You guys are done, you know. And then we just leave the stage for a minute and come back and do the show. <laughs> well, I've had that experience with Charlie Peacock when I went out with, it was me, Bruce, Charlie, Eric Clevin, uh -huh. Bongo Bob. You guys played the... Uh, uh, we opened for The Fix Yeah. first on, on a number of dates, but it was the same thing. We were following them in our van, pulling a... I don't know if we had a trailer, because they took our gear. Mm. We had yeah. our bags. I can't remember if we had a trailer. I hope we didn't. But we would just get there. We'd pull up to the stadium, and the, their guys would start pulling our stuff onto the stage. We'd run out there. So I don't even know if we got a line check sometimes mm. because they, they got the sound man already kind of had it dialed in. But we'd set it up, and then all of a sudden you're on, and we'd go back up there, and I'm, you know, the lights go down, and I'm playing for like thousands of people, and, I, and I'm just trying to not have a panic attack because I'm going, you know, I've never done this before. <laughs> I mean, I played some big gigs at Cornerstone maybe, yeah, yeah. or something like that. Wow. Greenbelt was wow. was terrifying, but then to actually do be doing pro shows just like that, it's it's a bit much. Yeah, having a crew who's on your side makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. Because if we hadn't had help and the love from those guys, it would have been terrible. And getting there just late, you know how I many yeah. late because you didn't have GPS, so you couldn't. Yeah, I mean you. No, you're right. It's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> and sometimes. Sometimes we'd have to like get off the stage, get back in the station wagon, wagon, and get on the road. Yeah, just because the next ne next venue was like so far away. Right, five hundred miles or something. Yeah, and you, and you weren't gonna make it if you slept and woke up in the morning, you know. And so, 
man, those guys used to rat, ride me all the time, you know. They were kind of cool because everybody was older than me. Yeah. You know, and why Norman put me in charge, I have no idea why, hmm. you know. And uh, so it was my responsibility to make sure they were at the gig, that they got to the gig, that there was gas. I had right. to do the gas money, pay them. Uh, For hotel, DM, all that. Uh, make advanced hotel oh. bookings. So why didn't he, why wasn't there a road manager? You were it? I was it. You were the, the kid. I was the kid. The you naive, you, the naive kid. You there know? you go. So he figured you had the energy and... Not and you weren't gonna you weren't gonna complain because I wasn't bits and moan. It's actually yeah, very very smart. Yeah, it was but, brilliant. But <laughs> we'll talk about that was boot camp, man. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's brilliant, man. Yeah, brilliant. and even with the temps, we didn't we we only had a bus one once when we did a certain thing when we did like a circular left Detroit and did a circular sort of route of colleges mm-hmm. that eventually brought us back to Detroit. Because then we took the horn section from Detroit. And even that was like a school bus. You know? Right. And it was like, I remember going to some university and they wouldn't let us bring the bus close to the gym. <clears throat> and it was a huge campus. And I had to bring my drum set from the bus to the gymnasium. I mean, as far away as you could see, you know, right. and, and, I, and I'm taking like two pieces at most of the time. Once I get there, I got to walk back and then bring it back. And then, I mean, it's like, there was no, I mean, touring with the temps was good when it was not that. Right. Because everybody flew, you got your own room. You know, it's really nice hotels, uh, but man, when it came to that part of it, uh, it was rough, and there was no sympathy. No, this is no, just you what were you expected do. to do yeah, your job. This is what you do. You know? Right, and um, call paying dues, I guess. <laughs> I guess. So, uh, yeah, the the Jackson Five thing, man, it ended in L.A. at the Forum. That was our last date. And um, after that, this club owner from Denver had his own plane. He picked us up uh, at LAX and flew us to Denver. And we played his club for two nights. And then flew back to Detroit. And that was that was the last gig I ever did with the Undisputed Truth. After that, <clears throat> we didn't know what they were going to do, you know. We started looking for jobs. And, um, matter of fact, when, when Cornelius Grant called me that day, I was at a job interview. You know, I, I was not at an interview. I had, I had gotten this position at a carpet company. They were recruiting people to come in and learn how to lay carpet, cut mm-hmm. carpet, teaching about the fabrics and all that sort of stuff. And it was a two-week uh, class. I'd go in the morning at 8, come out at 4. And it was in this attic of this big warehouse. And for some reason, it was secretive. They didn't want you to talk about it. I never understood that part of it. Um, but I had two more days to go mm. to finish when I got the phone call from Corn. And uh, 
that next day, I didn't go back. Wow. Because I, I got the gig that night, you know. And I was, you know, I never saw those people ever again. <laughs> 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 I was like yanked out. Well, we're going to take a station identification break, and we'll be right back. <laughs> anyway, this is Doc Love. Thanks for tuning in to this very special program. We've been wanting to do this for a really long time. We finally got the chance. So we hope you all join us back here next week. Same time, same station. Wait.